Hi, and welcome to another episode of Occupied. Thank you for listening and tuning in. Thank you for your continued support. I massively appreciate it. Uh, so today I bring you the amazing Kia Harding. He is someone that I've seen his work and his uh, contributions to the online space for many, many, many moons. So it's a long overdue connection to be made. Uh, and I'm super grateful that he came and had a chat. Uh, we started talking about uh, having difficult conversations, working with clients that are traditionally classed as difficult clients in air quotes. Um, there is a slight trigger warning because we do have a conversation about suicide, self-harm and conversations and working with people who are currently acutely experiencing either of those. Uh, and then we moved on to Kia's experience with uh, a borderline personality disordered population uh, in his current work uh, in his private practice. So please sit back, grab a coffee, and enjoy this episode. G'day, my name's Brock Cook, and welcome to Occupied. In this podcast, we're aiming to put the occupation in occupational therapy. We explore the people, topics, theories, and underpinnings that make this profession so incredible. If you're new here, you can find all of our previous episodes and resources at OccupiedPodcast.com. But for now, let's roll the episode. So, uh, very accidentally... um... So I, um, my parents got divorced when I was doing my A-levels, which is what you do before you go to uni in the UK. Um, so I didn't have a brilliant time doing those exams before uni. So I finished my A-levels without any offers for university. So I had to go through our clearing system. I had to try and find a place to do something somewhere. And I had it in my head that I was going to be a physiotherapist. And I had this idea about traveling the world with rugby teams um, and doing lots of massage and that kind of thing. And, um, you know, started going through clearing, couldn't get on these courses. And so someone said, well, what do you think about doing occupational therapy? And I went, yeah, yeah, all right, I'll do that. And they're right, we'll think about you for this course then. We'll think about you for the occupational therapy course. We'll give you a call back. And then because this was like a million years ago, I had to walk down the library to look up what occupational therapy was. Um, so I kind of <laughs> flicked through a couple of brooks, thought, yeah, yeah, that'll that'll do. That, that might be okay. Might be able to switch to physiotherapy while I'm doing it. Um, and I ended up in London on an occupational therapy course. I think I was a terrible student for a big, long time. And then I did my mental health placement on the second year. And yeah, I think the ideas about being part of a touring rugby team went out the window then. And I just thought, I want to work in psychiatry. This is where I want to be. So what was what was the, the placement? Was it inpatient or? Yeah, so it was an inpatient... Um, psychiatric hospital um i tell you one of the things that really struck me <laughs> and, and it just kind of like really showed me that this place was very different to what i had experienced so far so i was walking through the reception and there was this really bad smell and we looked around and we thought well, what's that and, and we looked over and there was this woman squatting on the floor defecating and i was like 
look, look what that woman's doing. And they said, yeah, she's visiting a guy on Ward 9. I said, the visitors are coming in and doing this. And <laughs> just, I'm not going to get these experiences in other places in my life. Yeah, um, I see that on a rugby but, team. You would never, never no. see anything like that. <laughs> Interestingly, right, a couple of years ago, um, I was at this celebration of OT events, and Princess Anne said to me, oh, what was uh, what were some of your memorable experiences in working in mental health? And I thought, oh, do I tell that story or not? And I did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, serenading the royalty. Yeah, I thought that's that, that's clearly what the royal family want to hear. Stories about public uh, excretion. That's that's I, what they want. I, I'm sure it'll stand out as a highlight from her trip, though. She'll remember it. Hopefully. Hopefully. Because <laughs> <laughs> I could see it. And she laughed when I hit the punchline, which might have been politeness or not. But there were a couple of people from the Royal College of Occupational Therapy looking at me as if I was... <laughs> I don't know, as it, yeah, as as if I had just <laughs> dropped my trousers in the room. It was, uh, what is this man doing? <sighs> you got a good story out of it. Yes, yes, um, but yeah. I'm surprised, <laughs> kind of like... I'm surprised inpatient didn't scare you away from mental health. I mean, but I quite like the idea of getting people off the board. Um, it was my first experience of kind of doing things with people who were I don't kind of, I probably couldn't articulate it very well at the time, but they were just kind of like outside of my reality. And I thought that was quite fascinating that something had happened that they, they were not connecting to the world in the same way that I was. Um, so, yeah, talking to people who would repeat back everything he said, talking to people who had ways of understanding things that sounded like some kind of spy novel. Um, and just, I don't know, because you got to ask them about their lives in so much detail. You became a part of that narrative, which seemed so much better than the see somebody and fix them up that I'd kind of mm. felt in the physical settings. Um, that that really touched on me. Um, That's the, the, the stories were something I always, because I work in a couple of different inpatient units over my career, and the the stories you would hear always fascinated me. And for me, the interest was more around sort of how that story developed because for a lot of them I could sort of work out like where the story had like there's some basis in reality to some of it and mm-hmm. it was sometimes like a misinterpretation of an event or something that someone had said to them and then it sort of that got skewed and you could kind of almost track back to what actually happened uh, to how they got from that to you know whatever the the big tale that you were being told was, um, and that side of it always just fascinated me, and I think it really kind of cemented. Uh, I felt like a lot of people, and it's well documented in history, mental health treatment history, that for a long time people in mental health were sort of treated almost not as people. They were, you know, they're too unwell. We lock them away or we essentially treat them like farm animals in some cases. Um, And even just making that simple, and a lot of Hollywood movies still look at that, but uh, that's another story. But um, I think that making, for me, making that link between like, okay, like these, 
stories that are sometimes super elaborate and out there, and like you said, something like a spy novel uh, can sort of be interpreted into uh, reality as I see it in a lot of cases, Ooh. if you're willing to spend the time and get to know the person and sort of explore it with them. Um, and that to me sort of went, okay, like these, they, they're people. <laughs> not, not that I was yeah. like in doubt of that, but it's like they're not, it, it, it I almost, I guess, gave me hope that the work that I was doing was actually going to help these people. Because yeah. there's a lot of, I mean, I've heard, or you hear all sorts of things from other professions on wards and stuff like that where, you know, oh, such and such is hopeless. He's been here for months and months and he's never going to get better or that kind of thing. And I think in the, I always found working in a ward, it was very much, it was kind of difficult for me in the first ward that I worked at because I was a new grad because you're kind of in this little bubble where you only ever see what happens on the ward and I never, because I was a new grad, I hadn't worked in any other places. You never see like the progress from the ward. You only ever see people at their very worst kind of thing. Um, so I, I found in that role initially, like a, some of those sort of, I guess, perpetuating stigmas that other people were sort of taught, other staff were saying on the ward, I almost started to, I guess, believe some of them. Um, like, you know, such and such is a hopeless case or, that kind of yeah. thing. So, and I think, yeah, making that link between some of those sort of stories and rea and my reality, my version of reality, um, really sort of, I think things, that was a, like, yeah. an eye-opening thing for me. Yeah. It's a couple of weird things that I used to find working on an inpatient unit was, um, I think when I started work, people tended to be on inpatient units a lot longer um whereas now i think people kind of go in short admission and out again mm. and i always remember some of my ot colleagues saying oh they get them off the board so quickly they they never leave them long enough so that they're able to access ot and i always used to think oh just get in there what are you talking about you know mm. what, what kind of profession are you where people have got to be a certain level of wellness for you to get involved and I always got quite annoyed that um, people didn't see that that acuity um, when somebody came in, that that was a reason to walk away as opposed to a reason to get in there when their functioning was absolutely through the floor. Um, so, yeah, I got a lot of frustration with my colleagues when I, they kind of... I had the <laughs> same thing in, in the one of the inpatient units that I worked at because there was multiple OTs, but on the second one, I was the only one, so I just did everything myself. But yeah, Ooh. I had the same thing in that it was like, you know, oh, such and such has just come in, we'll wait a few days until he starts getting a bit better before, you know, OT goes and sees him. I'm like, just even yeah. if you just go and talk to the dude, like, well, yeah. what's, what? <laughs> start building rapport, <laughs> like start the process. Uh, it's not going to hurt. And if anything, it's going to make your life easier and his life easier. And you probably get him out of here quicker. The sooner well, definitely. You start. And it, it felt like a quest to make our input irrelevant to the board. If we would only start to work with people when they were on the cusp of leaving, it kind of sent this big message that we weren't required for mm. the population there. And people had the attitude, we've just got the wrong patients. If we had the right patients, mm. we'd be doing some good work and like oh such a nonsense <laughs> i think yeah that's that's that even just that is interesting i've never thought of it like that but i think that's 
that correlates well with my experience as well in terms of like people were often uh almost like picking and choosing who who they would see based on diagnosis based on you know level of uh delusion sometimes like if they were mm-hmm. in a uh depending on how far they were from the the clinician's reality i guess you could say yeah um yeah people were often put in and it's not uncommon for a ward to be like to for a, a too hard basket to be discussed on a ward uh mm-hmm. unfortunately um but yeah i always found that some of the some of the clients I had the most success and the most personal enjoyment with were the ones that were classed by other people as too hard, you know, too acute to yeah. actually work with. And they're some of the ones that I had the the biggest breakthroughs with and like the most personal um I don't know what you call warm and fuzzies, because I actually felt like I made a difference to this person. Yeah. Um but even like I used to say when I used to have students, I'm like, even if you, on the day they get here, you just go and introduce yourself and have a chat. Like if you do nothing other than that, then like that's more than they're probably going to get. They're in a strange place. Some of them have never been there before. It's not the most, I can probably speak for all acute units. They're not the most stimulating of environments and they're usually yeah. not very nice or comfortable. They're usually freezing cold for some reason. I don't know why. It doesn't matter where. I'd say not in our country. Oh, really? In our country, they're little tropical greenhouses. Oh, really? oh <laughs> no, nah, over here, I don't know why. Probably because it's hot outside, so they just dump the aircon, and it just every water I've ever been on here is freezing. So I don't know how like, people sleep at night. It's so cold. Um, yeah, they're just not very inviting environments but if you can be a happy face be a friendly ear you know introduce yourself actually show genuine interest in a person if you do nothing other than that when they first arrive you've already made more steps than any other profession on that ward i think and i think you know if we were going to put it in our own terminology i think that is you're adjusting the social environment around mm. them a little bit. You are being a friendly face and a warm, empathic person that you didn't have to be, do you know, mm. in, in the sense that is a bit of an intervention. And, yeah. you know, we can write that off as just chatting to somebody, but it's not, is it? It's no. it's, it's actually making that effort. That's, that's another one of the biggest revelations I've ever had in my career is I am part of the environment for that person. Mm-hmm. It's like a lot of clinicians. I found in even talking with a lot of OTs specifically, like, see themselves as having an impact on that person's environment or like almost like an external force on that person, on their environment, on their occupations, but without ever really looking at, like they'll talk about um, therapeutic use of self, but I don't know how many people actually consider that in doing that, you are the person's environment. Uh, And by changing, like if you go in there just, with nothing else different other than you're in a shitty mood, that's going to have an impact on that person's social environment and it's going to have an impact yeah. on that person. Um, and I do wonder, in a cue, coming back to, I guess, having working with the difficult uh, people, I wonder how often that, uh, I guess, labeling of someone as a difficult person is mainly just them reacting to you <laughs> in a way because yeah. i've seen it a lot in other caring professions where 
if they're in a shitty mood, uh, then the whole ward tends to sort of carry that mood, whether they mean to or not. It's this mm-hmm. sort of transference, and um, we just always used to say on the on the last ward that I worked on that your mood is kind of contagious within that little because it's such a little enclosed bubble on the ward. You, yeah. whatever you bring into the ward is contagious, and that metaphorically speaking, but probably nowadays, I guess I can't really say that nowadays because <laughs> it probably carries a very different meaning. But um, speaking around mood, when I was saying that, rather than bacteria and viruses (laughs) but thinking about how those influences in the social environment do kind of reverberate off each other i remember um i think it was like the first acute inpatient unit that i was employed on um i remember a guy got admitted and the lead nurse kind of pointed him out and he said oh he's got personality disorder and I didn't know what that meant at the time and I was like oh what's, what's that and he was like, oh, it just means that you can't do anything to help him and because I didn't know any different yeah. I kind of went oh right okay mm, that's a shame and you know that 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 idea about um we can't help those people they're just attention seeking they're just manipulative um because I think we're not trained particularly well Mm. in our undergraduate training to understand why people might act in a certain way then we pick up those kind of really stigmatizing attitudes from people who also weren't trained to um, understand things in a different way and that just carries on you know Mm. and we get this toxic idea of people who uh you know don't deserve to be on the wards people who are the source of their own misfortune and unless we do something to combat that, that just carries on and on and on. Um, and I think that's a big part in those people who, you know, we end up thinking, oh, we can't help them. Because it's often because people have told us that. And it's yeah. often because people have gone in to try to help them with the idea that they can't be helped, um, which generally doesn't help. <laughs> yeah, I, I had, sounds like I had a very similar experience. The very first time, I again, I never heard of, uh, borderline personality disorder I was in a case management team uh, and we got a new referral and it was someone with borderline and the general consensus was they can't give that person to a new grad because that diagnosis is too hard it has to go Ooh. to a super experienced clinician who I don't in hindsight don't think did any better than anyone else but um that was my first thing. So I'm like, anytime I saw that diagnosis on a sheet now, I'm like, oh, okay, that's got to go to, you know, such and such, the senior clinician, because it's too hard for, you know, us mere new grads or us mere, you know, base level clinicians kind of thing. And I think that even just that kind of set the tone of that's too hard. Yeah. Like, there's nothing I can do. <coughs> that's that's something for a senior there's no extra training to go from a base level therapist to a senior therapist here. It's just a yeah. like it's a pay pay rise. That's about it. Uh, it means you've struggled so, for a bit longer. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> just means you've been there for a while. But so I don't know what they were gonna do that I couldn't do, and I but I'd never actually thought that at the time. It was just this is yeah. the way it's done. So okay, this is the way it must be. Um, and I, and think I think that's because, kind of uh, cemented in in some team. Yeah. And I think that idea that um, because 
borderline personality disorder is diagnosed quite badly in my experience. You've got to wonder when you see it written in somebody's notes, does it mean that somebody has given them a very thorough assessment and they have checked off whether they meet certain criteria or not? Or does it mean that people have actually found them hard to work with, so decided they've got borderline personality mm-hmm. disorder? And, do you know, that is a lot of my experience is that people that other people find hard to help other people find anxiety provoking they get that label put upon them and that's that's how it comes about rather than as a process of thorough assessment and understanding i always found probably that die like the bpd diagnosis more than any diagnosis has its own i guess stigmatized language that tends to regularly get used with it and just you saying that made me think like i would often hear you know, it'll be a, a client that's got something like bipolar, but because the clinician has found it difficult, they've also then got unofficially borderline traits, mm-hmm. uh, which was something that was so common when I was working clinically. I'm like, everyone that was difficult had borderline traits. And I'm like, I don't yeah. even know what that means. Like, what is that's not a diagnosis. Like, what is that? That just means that you don't know what to do with them or <laughs> they don't like yeah. you maybe? Yeah, <laughs> at that, or, or potentially a gauge of how much the clinicians like that person. I yeah, think that's, uh, <laughs> that's a bigger worry. It was always the, you mentioned some of them before too that sort of gave me flashbacks was attention seeking. Um, the fact that a lot of the people that I worked with on the ward didn't believe that oh you know the acute unit isn't the right place for someone with borderline because it's just feeding into their you know, what they want kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I feel really, I don't know, I still think I carry somewhat, I guess, kind of guilt in a way because I didn't know any better at the time to actually go, no, that's not actually true. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not how this diagnosis works, if that is the correct diagnosis that you've been, you know, that you've given them anyway. Because um, yeah. I also agree, I think it's something that is... It's almost like the, or it seems to be, almost like the like the backup diagnosis when they can't sort of pinpoint another one, so they're like borderline, uh, as opposed to actually going through the clinical process and formally diagnosing it with you know it's ticking all the boxes. Yes, okay, this is borderline personality disorder, whatever type, depending on what manual they're using, I guess. Yeah, um, I mean, even then, I don't think it's a very useful way of describing oh, no. people or um, working with them. Uh, but yes, I mean, that level of thought often doesn't happen. Uh, I find it similar to, in some cases, I think it's just getting better, but I find it similar to autism in, in a lot of ways where it's kind of like uh-huh. we've exhausted these options, so it must be this one, as opposed to actually yeah. testing for this one. But you know, a lot of times people kind of say... Um, or people with BPD have actually got autism, or they've actually got disassociative identity disorder. And I think we've got this collection of diagnoses that people find it really hard to think about. Um, And, you know, is is it this, or is it that, or is it... And this quest to get the right label, I think we put a lot of effort into it for, for very little rewards. Whereas I think, actually, you know, what are they doing? And can we understand why they're doing that? And if we can understand that, then we can start making some decisions about how to help. Whereas, like, is it ADSD? Is it ASPD? Is, 
you know, we, we can pull our hair out trying to label something because I think it gives us some feeling of control and knowledge when in reality it does very little to be able to help that person. And like, if we can formulate, we're, we're off. Yeah, and that's it. And I, I can see, like I have talked to people where they're like, you know, the best thing ever was when I got my diagnosis and then I knew what was going on and I'm like, yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah, obviously everyone's different. But then there's other people, that, a lot of the people that I've worked with just going through that because that process of actually getting a diagnosis sometimes can take years. Like it can take, you know, multiple admissions um, where they'll collect historical data across those admissions and then compare that to previous admissions. And like it can take a long time to get a formal diagnosis. And that process can be traumatizing to people. Like actually the process of getting a diagnosis can be can be causing trauma to the individuals um and the thing that i've i mean i've said it for years and while i was still working clinically to every student i think i've ever had like i can as an ot because i'm not i don't view ot as a medical model profession i can completely do my job without knowing what the diagnosis is anyway like i don't need that label to do occupational therapy uh i need to get to know the person i need to know what they want to do with their lives and i need to know you know some of the things that might be stopping them from doing that and that's a pretty good place to start well yeah particularly if the diagnosis is one that is associated with not being able to help and people being undeserving of care you know i think in that way diagnosis can be incredibly unhelpful i think it's it there's a lot of uh pretty much just building on what you just said then like there's a lot of uh st- stigma i guess you'd call it that comes along with these diagnoses that quite often it's better if you don't know before you go into mm-hmm. it because it stops you going in there with any preconceived ideas um yes you know i always get blowback when i say that but yes okay there's safety things that you need to know but you can know safety safety things got nothing to do with diagnosis uh-huh. Like yeah, there's no reason why you can't get a safety handover without getting a oh they've got this diagnosis and blah 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 uh-huh. blah blah. I'm like they're they're very different things. Where I do feel yeah. even on why I I find I find health staff to be the biggest perpetuators of stigma of any population <laughs> because I think in a lot of ways they're kind of desensitized to it a bit. So they just it just comes out. <laughs> and and I suppose again, it is what people are taught. It is what mm. that staff culture um breeds. And unless there's a voice articulating a different way of thinking about it, then people don't know. And like you say, you know, maybe stuff perpetuates stigma more than anything else. I think the general public, they don't know anything mm. about, you know, this area of work. So they are happy to think, well, I don't know anything. Yeah. Whereas, you know, <laughs> somebody on the wards will think, no, it's my job to know this. So I know about these people and what they need and what they don't. And there is something about the lack of knowledge that a defence against that is to have some confidence about it, which... Again, I think we would be much better off being a bit more humble and curious when we're getting alongside people. See, I've often wondered, because I don't, like, obviously, I'm I'm working in the university now, and I'm obviously overseeing, or I can look over all the course material, and I'm like, I can't see anywhere 
within that sort of course material that those kind of ideas would be picked up, particularly with the mental health stuff, because that's my wheelhouse, that's what I teach. So I know that yeah. I'm, I'm actively trying to make sure that there's none of that kind of stigmatizing language or anything like that. And I teach my students specifically about stigma and how it develops and, you know, social constructionism and that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. so hoping that they are very aware of it when they go out. And then I still see that these workplaces, some workplaces, it's still there. And I'm like, well, obviously I'm sure other courses aren't, you know, are actively trying to do the same thing that I'm trying to do or we're trying to do in that we're not trying to teach our students, I guess, these bad habits and these bad ideas. Mm-hmm. So I wonder where this comes from. Yeah. And and I think it comes from staff groups who, who never had that training initially. Um, so they've just learned on the job. Do you know, So I learned how to talk to suicidal people on the phone by talking to suicidal people on the phone. And I think that was a terrible way to learn, both mm. for me and the person I was talking to. Um, but I think that's what happens is we learn to work with people with very complex difficulties um, by just being in front of them often. And that's that's not ideal. And I think if you... I can, I can appreciate that not every... Um, higher education syllabus can kind of think, right, this diagnosis and this presentation. Mm. But I think when I was at university, I was prepared for people who would, t- they would, they really want their lives to be different. They would be grateful for my advice and they would go off and do what I suggested. And, you know, and a big part of me wanting to do OT was to be helpful, you know, and I, I am a good person because I do helpful things. Mm. And then if I'm working with people who, you know, they've lived through a life of abuse, so they don't trust me. And, you know, rather than being grateful for what I'm offering, they're quite annoyed that I'm being rather flippant in what I'm suggesting and they're furious at me. And and then I'm leaving work at the end of the day thinking, oh, actually, I'm not a good person because, you know, that person seems worse than when I started. And... Yeah, I, th- I think that's a brilliant recipe for being really annoyed and um, having really powerful feelings against the people we're working with. Whereas if you can understand people in a different way, if you can think about, well, what is it about this person's life that would mean that they wouldn't trust me? What is it about this person's life that would mean that they don't see their capacity for solving problems and making changes? Then I think if we can understand that, then we can be a lot more empathic and helpful. Whereas I think what we often tend to do is think, oh, well, I wouldn't act like that. So they're bad in some way for acting the way they do. Yeah, I I do wonder how often, uh, I guess, intervention plans are often like, oh, here's what I would do uh, Mm -hmm. as a a therapist, not just OTs, like any therapist, um, even just friendly advice that I hear, like nurses and social workers and stuff giving clients on, on wards. Um, but I think it's, it's important to be aware that, that, you know, what you would do is shaped by, you know, your experiences and your potentially lack of trauma and your social circles and your environment. If we're going to go full ox science here, but, um, and what you're recommending based on that isn't going to fit with 
the yeah. person who's coming to you with a trauma history, who doesn't trust you, who doesn't want to be there, who doesn't even know what you do and you're not presenting it in a way that they even care about. Um, whatever you suggest, they're probably just going to tell you to shove it and then you're going to go, oh, well, they're difficult to work with. <laughs> All because you didn't spend the time to actually get to know them uh, and what they're bringing to the table, essentially. Yeah. It's an exercise that I often do when I'm training is to try and get people to think about a baby's needs and then a toddler's needs. And people will always talk about, well, they need to learn right and wrong. They need to learn their place in society. And that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But so many people I work with haven't had that socialization, you know? So when I've worked with people who's, who went crying to their mum to say that the kids won't play with me, their mum said, well, you need to go and beat them up. Um, I've worked with people whose father would dangle them out of the window as a punishment for stuff. And you've just got to accept that these people are going to have really different ideas about themselves, other people in the world than we're going to have. And unless we can appreciate that and get into that mindset, then we're always just going to be judging that they're thinking about things wrong. They know right and wrong and they're choosing to do this. Actually, maybe the way that right and wrong was explained to them was very different mm. to what we picked up. I remember working with a guy uh, who uh, is diagnosed with schizophrenia, but he'd been, he was only young, I think he was about 25, uh, and he, but he'd been in the hospital system since he was 16. Um, and because of that and his, his early diagnosis at sort of 16, I think at the, at the time I didn't know him when he was diagnosed. I think it was may have been drug-induced, but I'm not sure. But he, development-wise, he kind of stopped at 16. So at 25, when I was working with him, you know the the complaints that I got when I when he got referred over to my team to me were he doesn't want to work he just wants to spend all his money on video games he wants to smoke weed he wants like I'm like he's a sixteen year old mm -hmm. I'm like like we're expecting this sixteen year old to all of a sudden magically be a twenty five year old without any of the things the experiences that we would have gone through between sixteen and twenty five that turn us from an adolescent that's solely focused on our own needs and pleasure and, you know, having mm. fun and having friends and doing whatever it is we want and no responsibilities into a young adult who, you know, sometimes at that age, most, a lot of people would have qualifications and be starting careers and that kind of stuff. And we're expecting him mm -hmm. to do that with none of the actual training per se, which yeah. is what those experiences are. They're, they're training. That's what, how we get to that stage. Um, and I've always hung on to that because for some reason, his case, it was like so obvious to me that this is what was happening. And I've always looked at anyone who's been in the system because I've always found if once you get into a mental health system, if you're in it for a long time, it can, because quite often, you know, with admissions and then you've got a period of time after an admission where you're still trying to readjust, those periods take away from life experiences that you might normally have which can yeah. stunt uh your i don't know i guess progression uh at you know whatever you're meant to be doing at an expected age um in your society so i, I yeah. think that kind of stuff just even the fact that they're in the system 
Um, whether it's acute or whether you're case managing them or whether you're on a crisis team and seeing people, um, any time that they're in the system, it needs to be noted that this is a time that is being taken away from time that they would be normally having experiences that help people grow. So not only are they having a diagnosis, which is taking them away from that, they're also losing the time that would normally be going towards helping them develop into whatever their next stage of life is, whatever age they're at. Um, And I think that's often forgotten. It's often like if we, you know, sort of teach them to manage the diagnosis and, you know, that takes two years, then two years later they'll just be two years more developed. doesn't work like that. We then need to sort of tailor what we're doing and tailor our mindset. Like as soon as I clicked that this kid, this guy was sort of behaving like a 16-year-old, I started working with him like a 16-year-old and we made so much progress because I started, I I was more aware of his level. I was more able to go, these are the kinds of things, like I get it, I vaguely, but I remember being 16. I know the kinds of things a 16-year-old boy wants to do and it's usually not much he wants yeah. to sleep until lunchtime and he wants to you know eat junk food for dinner and he wants to like he's just learning to take control of his or he's learning that he has control of his life uh and he hasn't quite worked out how to manage that control in a healthy way and most 25 year olds most I guarantee there's still some out there that don't, but most 25-year-olds are past that and then moving on to the next stage. So, yeah, I, I always found that a, a fascinating, working with anyone, a fascinating yeah. thing is to sort of see, well, where are they? Just because they are, you know, chronologically an age doesn't mean that the the behaviours or the coping mechanisms or the skills that someone at that age would normally have that this person is actually going to have them. And that's the difference, isn't it, is that we can look at people and kind of think, right, this is what they should be doing, and this is goal X, Y, and Z. Mm. And then if their goals are totally different to that, mm. then, you know, they, they're not going to be part of our care plan. And then we can think about it like you did and kind of think, right, well, why is that? Or we can think, oh, sabotaging their care plan, deliberately breaking it down, oh, such a bad person, mm. and you know, if we can keep that curiosity about why does this make sense, then we can come up with some good reasons and do something with that. I always found why to be the biggest question. It's always my favorite question because I, I don't know, even as a kid, I always wanted to know why things worked or how they worked and I'd pull things apart to work out what was going on. And I think that, I guess I call it a skill set. That skill set sort of carried over into my professional life, and it's always interested me. Especially when I got older, and I sort of got an interest in the, I guess, psychology side of things. I want to know why people do things. Why do they yeah. make the decisions that they make? Why did you react when this happened? Because uh, that's not how I would react. That's different. So why? Why is that different? Like that sort of stuff always fascinated me. Mm. And I think we need to keep that. We need to keep asking, why does something make sense? Because I think it always does. You know, mm. I don't think we ever work with people who act totally randomly. Um, and I think we become our most dangerous as practitioners when we stop asking why and we start just judging. They're just doing it because they are just doing this. And as soon as we say that, I think we've just stopped thinking about people. You just stop caring. Yeah. Because I think, that, I mean, a lot of people talk about, uh, you know, OT being a lifelong profession and we're always learning. And I think a lot of people interpret that as 
CPD and professional development and that kind of stuff. Whereas to me, I'm like, no, it's like individual clients. Like if I meet a new client, I'm learning off that person. I'm learning about that person. I'm learning how they react. I'm learning how they think. I'm learning, you know, what their family's like, what their hopes and dreams and what they've been up to with their lives, that kind of stuff. Like that to me is where the learning is because the moment that I stop and I go, oh, yeah, I've had a person like this before. This is what we did then. Like that's yeah. to me, that's when the learning stops and you're just phoning it in. Um, so I've always, that's the one thing I've always really, well, not, not one thing, but one thing I have always been very conscious of is that lifelong learning sort of moniker that gets thrown around with OT so often mm. is to not just think about that on terms of formal courses and, you know, textbook stuff you might usually consider when you, when you hear that. Um, is that it's it can be just down to the individual clients. And I think in a lot of ways that's more important than all of that sort of formal courses and learning and that kind of stuff. Yeah, and you're right. And I think um, I think there's a value to kind of like having a template of, you know, I, I have some familiarity with this at the moment, but then I can recognize where things are diverting from what might fit my template. Um, so being able to do that, you know, I've, and I think that's clinical reasoning to some extent. Yeah. But yeah, just thinking, you know, schizophrenia, I know what to do with that. That's that's not very helpful. Having said that, though, I think that's part of the reason that some people kind of get that sense of, you know, that they don't quite belong on this ward. Because I think if you go onto your average psychiatric ward, somebody who's acutely psychotic, somebody who's manic, then the board think, right, we know what to do with this person. We are very clear about what our role is here. When you work with somebody who, um, you know, is hurting themselves, if you work with somebody who is suicidal, it's it's not as obvious what the role is for, for the team there, I think. Mm. And again, I think that, that not, not knowing, wanting to be helpful and not knowing how, that can lead to people being a bit unpopular um, as they make us feel a bit useless. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's another population, uh, I'll say population, but that's another instance where I've I've heard people talk about having trouble or finding it very difficult to work with people who are acutely suicidal or thinking about self-harm or actively self-harming. Um, because I don't, I think that's one area where it's not made clear what OT's role is with that mm-hmm. in, in those situations because um, we often and I think because the a lot of it is especially in like say a crisis team a lot of that is due to I guess the urgency of the situation it's like well I don't have time to you know sit down and work out occupationally what's missing from this person's life and what needs aren't being met and that kind of thing and honestly that's not what they need in that that you know period of that phone call or period of that home visit or wherever you are um so i do think that a big that that is one area where i think uh some extra training might be useful for for ot's and that might come down to ot courses actually talking about well here's what ot's can offer and or or can ot's offer um anything unique in sort of those situations do you, what, what do you think? Do you think OTs are, are sort of equipped or suited to working with 
people who are suicidal or self-harming? Uh, as somebody who works with people who are suicidal and self-harming, I'd say yes, yes, yeah. Um, a loaded question. <laughs> yeah, but I tell you what, though, right? If we um, if we got a new client tomorrow and we looked at how they were functioning, we wouldn't hesitate to look at the things they do and how they went about them and what the function of their different occupations were. Um, and there's nothing to stop us doing that with self-harm. And, and suicidality, you know. So for some reason, you know, trigger warning coming, you know, for some reason, cutting your arms open is useful. It is better in that moment than not doing it. And we can say, well, that's bad and they shouldn't do it. Or we can understand what's going on. Um, so I, I, in some ways, I don't think we need any more training to do that. I think we just need the inclination to do that. Um, and perhaps some encouragement that that area of work, that's something that we should probably be more interested in than some of the other professions. Um, equally, you know, that sometimes life doesn't feel worth living. So people act as if that is true when they go and do something that might end life or is actively seeking life. And again, you know, let's be able to understand that. And particularly, let's be able to understand why they're still alive, because something is happening that is serving a function that means that they're still around. Mm. And again, we can kind of go, oh, well, you know, they, they've overdosed four times and they're not dead yet. Ugh, they're bad. And again, you know, can we understand that? What's going on there? You know, something really important is happening there that is keeping them alive. Let's make use of that. Yeah. Um, but at, at the moment, I don't think we're curious enough. Because that's one thing I've, I've talked about with students, and I will actually put a trigger warning on this because I know some people are uncomfortable with these kinds of conversations, but someone who really genuinely wants to end their life and they've exhausted every other avenue for support and help, there is nothing you will do that will change their mind. Mm-hmm. Like, but the thing is, with the number of people that you work with, there are a lot of people that still have even just the tiniest sliver of hope yeah. or the, the tiniest uh, protective factor that might be even just, even though they might be attempting uh, at times, there's something that is stopping them from making it, doing something that is just so final that it can't be undone. And they're the little tiny things that getting to know that person and yeah. sort of getting into their narrative and finding those little things and then building on those little things, you can literally save someone's life by yeah. spending the time and being compassionate and showing that you genuinely care is is a big thing that I always found is, I don't know why, but clinicians seem to think that we can bullshit our way through situations and yeah. clinician bullshit is easier to see through than normal bullshit because usually you don't know the person very well. So it's even more obvious. Whereas if you genuinely show that you care, whether you've met that person or not, you can be on an, a, a crisis team and you've never met that person before. That doesn't mean you can't genuinely have concern and care for that person's well being. And I think finding that, or, or showing that, portraying that to that person is is a, a big step for for, for yeah. well, big first step at least, and then trying to find those little protective factors. So, like you said, like they've attempted, you know, suicide four times. They're they're bad people. I'm like, yeah, but 
like there's something there's they've done something they've got some strength that's well, meant that they've survived four times like whether it's a, a really supportive support network or you know they've got kids that are they last minute they sort of change their mind and they can't go through with it so they ring the ambulance or whatever the reason is there's something there it's not that yeah. they failed four times it's the fact that they've survived uh and and pushed through four times like that's like you like you described before like that's a good thing like that's something that yeah. you should celebrate and build on and find out what <coughs> that is so that you can highlight that to the person and build on it it's it's the probably the most strength based uh, practice area that we've got yeah. in health. I don't think there's anything else we can do other than be strength-based to be successful when working with that population. And humans generally want to stay alive, you know. We've got a fairly powerful instinct for that. Um, so, you know, let, let's celebrate when that instinct is kicking in rather than, yeah. you know, blame people. And, yeah. Again, you know, I think we can be really curious about when people are suicidal. And I think you, you hear a lot of people complain that they tell somebody that I feel suicidal and the first response is, well, have you tried distracting yourself from that? Yeah. Um, as if, you know, like, <laughs> my house is on fire. Have you tried distracting yourself yeah, from yeah. that? You know, yeah. we, we want to understand what's going on because... You know, it's telling us something, you know, something is happening in this person's life that means checking out is is a viable alternative. It, it feels like it's a useful thing. So we can understand what it is in that moment that means that life's not worth living. And maybe we can do some problem solving around that. Or maybe we can just validate that actually, yeah, it is absolutely awful. And then we can have a look at, and is it going to be like this forever? Mm. You know, can we have some hope that this unbearable situation might change at some point? Can you hang on while we try and do X or Y or Z that will change this unbearable thing? I don't know if I was taught that way of articulating um suicidal thoughts when i when i was training i don't think i was um but you know we we can have this curiosity we can break this stuff down and you know and if we don't i don't know who else does it you know that this is an occupation this taking these tablets and drinking and lying down in bed it is something that people are doing to serve a function Hmm. and we need to be able to understand understand that i think because I've had these discussions with students that I've supervised, oh, sorry, not students, new grads that I've supervised uh, and clinicians that I've supervised around trying to find these strengths when people are in that sort of acute suicidal phase. And if you, if there's nothing else that you can find, the fact that they're talking to you mm. is a big thing. Like the fact that they're, if they're, say, especially <coughs> if you're, you know, most health services will have some sort of emergency crisis line where people can ring. The fact that they made that, like they've picked up that phone, yeah. they've dialed the number and they've talked to someone because they're feeling suicidal or sometimes they've attempted something, that the fact that they've made that phone call means that there's something there that's telling them they want to stick around. Yeah. Um, like yes. that alone, if you can't find anything else, build on that. Yeah. Because I think if we see suicidality as a spectrum, like you said, if somebody really wants to kill themselves, then mm. you wouldn't be able to do anything about it because you wouldn't know, no. do you know? Just, but somebody is 100% on that yeah. end of the spectrum, they just do it. Whereas everything else, I think, is an invitation for a different outcome that we can, and, that we can step and, into. And like I said before, like that, 
it sounds very drastic when I say like you won't stop them, but the number of people that you well that's that's the thing, but the number of people that you will work with over your career, the number of people that hit that point where there's nothing you could possibly have done, you don't know, they're not going to tell you, and they just suicide is a infinitely smaller percentage than the total number of people that you may talk to about mm-hmm. their suicidal thoughts or their plans or you know how they're doing or have they attempted or that kind of thing like it's not i'm not trying to make it sound drastic like there's nothing we can do because i'm just saying that if someone really wants to you they they will but yeah. that is by far and away the minority of people when it comes to the like it's the total number of people you will have interactions with who are experiencing some sort of suicidal thoughts suicidal ideation that kind of thing um so there's don't give up hope there's there's tons of yeah. hope um, believe it or not that is actually highlighting that there's a lot of hope uh for you to be able to help people <laughs> and, and not only don't give up hope hold that hope for mm. somebody else because they might not be able to see it whereas you might be able to without sounding utterly invalidating talk about previous experiences of helping mm. people in similar situations before knowing people who've gone through similar things and come out the other side you know and i think you've got to be kind of delicate in kind of how you say that yeah but you know we've, we've got a lot of experience that we yeah. can use with people i think i think one thing that is kind of unique about OTs in mental health is there's very few that have actually experienced anything like the people that we actually work with like there's very few OTs that have got to that point where they want to take their life and they need to ring for support like there's there would be very few OTs that have ever had to do that for themselves so there's very few OTs that sort of have that lived experience of what some of these people might be going through so bear that in mind when you are like it's okay to talk about uh like like you said before about you know I've worked with people who have you know described similar things to you and you know here's what they've sort of tried here's what they talked about is that but I would be constantly trying to also flip that back to like is that similar do you do you relate to that not just try not to make it so that it's here's me here's what i've done in the past and here's what you should do because it worked for someone else kind of thing um i'd be using them to more highlight examples of you kind of want to try and get the other person thinking so it's like here's what i've sort of heard of before um you know is that something that you know you have access to you know your mom is she around can you talk to her or do you know do you have any other close family use them as examples to kind of i guess you are highlighting because you don't have that lived experience you're kind of highlighting vicarious experience through other people that you've worked with or that you've talked to etc um but you're using that to make the other person still try and think about their own uh, environment and that kind of thing, using it to highlight, I guess, the process of what we're doing as opposed to what, like, a prescriptive, like, here's what you do to fix, yeah. here's what you do to fix your situation kind of thing. Exactly. You, do, you, don't, you don't want to do that. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, oh, sorry. I'll say that a lot of my work around kind of self-harm and suicidality kind of comes around with people in hospital. Um, 
And again, I think this is where the environment's really important because I see a lot of people who, in the community, they they self-harm in a way that is kind of relatively controlled. Um, so they might cut in a particular way or they might overdose and then go to the emergency room and seek help. And what I often find is that when those people end up on a psychiatric ward, um, what becomes part of their care plan that is never kind of discussed and agreed, but is enforced is that those people are going to stop self-harming now. Mm-hmm. We're going to watch you and we are going to take away whatever methods you do to self-harm. And then we kind of congratulate ourselves on keeping people safe while watching as they do whatever they can to get that same relief and same, um, whatever that self-harm is doing, they still need to get it. So they, you know, they start ripping Coke cans open to cut themselves with, they start ligaturing and, you know, Medication for me, seeking. Yeah. Well, and, and for me, it kind of says that there's something in that environment that has suddenly made their behavior considerably more lethal. Hmm. And, what organizations often get stuck in is the idea, well, we can't let them out now. We're going to have to keep them in this place where their way of acting is considerably more lethal to themselves until they stop doing it, as opposed to when they were outside and were able to keep themselves safer um, a lot more. Um, so a lot of my work at the moment is trying to get people out of environments like that, kind of go to our mental health tribunals and just argue that we can't keep people in these places that are so dangerous to them. Even though it feels weird to be a bit less restrictive, just look at how this restriction is impacting on this person that we're supposed to be helping. Um, I, th- I think in those the, the situations when I've, worked with people similar to that i think the the natural reaction is oh you know they're cutting themselves take away sharp things um Mm -hmm. or or we're we're keeping i think i think a lot of the i mean a lot of i think the intention is always good and the intention is to try and keep people safe but you're right Mm -hmm. I, i feel like the the lack of understanding about the reasoning why that behavior is happening, we come full circle, we're back to why again, but why that behavior is happening is actually worsening it in a situation, uh, in that situation. And I feel like that is hopefully before that, but if, if that's the first contact you've got with people is when they first hit the ward and things start escalating, get in there don't wait (laughs) as an ot as an ot your understanding of person occupation environment just even just those three concepts uh is perfect for trying to understand why people do the things that they do and what's uh triggering certain behaviors so what's triggering self-harm behaviors um Obviously, if the behavior is happening outside and they're brought into hospital and it escalates, then there's something that is sort of carried through. It's obviously not the home environment specifically that's causing that behavior. You might need to explore. I always find OT to be kind of like <coughs> being a bit of a detective. And you can you get all these little clues and you start sort of piecing it together, but you do it with the person. So obviously the behavior, if it's something that's been happening at home, then there's something about that home environment that is also happening to a a larger scale if it's escalating in the hospital environment. 
And that mm-hmm. gives you some clues to start actually having a look at, well, what's going on? You know, yeah. oh, they're separated from their social network in both, but they're locked away in here. So they're even further, they feel like they're further separated. It could be something like that. But they're mm-hmm. the kinds of things that you can start looking at um, based on the clues that you get. You can yeah. be, be your own little Sherlock Holmes. And you only get those clues if you're interested and you're curious and you can talk to people and ask about this stuff. And yeah, and I think sometimes there's the idea that the OT work starts when this stuff is out of the way. And, you know, I would always say that this is our work. Yeah. This is the stuff that we should be getting interested in. Yeah, that's and I think it's important too. Like this kind of stuff isn't, yes, okay, it happens a lot more regularly on a mental health ward, but this kind of stuff, happens in every practice area um Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter if you're working in peds geriatrics adult physical doesn't matter where you are you're gonna come across people who are exhibiting behaviors who are have mental health issues who uh you know are suicidal are self-harming uh whatever it is you're gonna come across people people who have mental health issues don't always just end up in mental health wards that yeah. probably, like, I reckon 1% maybe would ever hit a mental health ward of people who've experienced some sort of mental health difficulty. And obviously, I have nothing to back that up. That's just my assumption. <laughs> but I'm highlighting that it's a very small percentage. Yeah, There are a lot more people going through a general hospital than there are going through a mental health ward. And the chances of you coming across someone who's experiencing a mental health difficulty, having, as we talked about before this podcast, we had scheduled this up month and a half ago but i ended up in hospital for a little thing uh and i had to reschedule it but that and again that was my first experience in a hospital touch wood um but i could see just actually being there the impact on someone's mental health the fact that i couldn't even get a night's sleep because someone's waking you up every two hours to take your blood pressure the fact that the food is horrendous. The fact that there are some wards where you can't actually leave because the doors are locked like in ED. Yeah. Even though like, I wasn't trapped, I could have asked, but the fact that I don't have that option, I don't have that freedom, it's out of my control, is very different to what I'm used to at home here where I can mm-hmm. do whatever I want and go wherever I want, whenever I want. Um, just being on a ward will have an impact on someone's mental health. Like like I said, I, it was my first experience ever being admitted to a hospital. And you may come across yeah. someone who it's their first experience ever being, they may have a car accident, they've been admitted to your physical rehab ward. They're going to experience some mental health symptoms, whether major, minor, depending on their development, their coping skills, their previous uh, experiences, their whatever, everything. But they're going to experience something, whether it's due to the accident itself or just the fact that they're there. Healthcare is traumatizing. I don't know how yeah. much I have to say that. But it's something that I think we often forget and we're too busy trying to treat what's going on outside when we're realizing that, or well, we're not realizing because we're not looking for it, the fact that they're there in front of us, wherever we are, whatever ward, whatever team we're working in, whatever clinical setting we're in, the fact that they're in front of us is, is going to have an impact no one comes to see us when they're happy and healthy and they just want to say good day. Oh, <laughs> I tell you what, right? As um this is my experience of kind of feeling powerless and helpless in healthcare. And and it's something that I use to try and relate in a small way to people who are detained, right? But um 
when I've got a son and a daughter, right? And my daughter had broken her leg and was in hospital in traction. And just at that time, my son was being born in the same hospital. So they're a couple of wards apart. Um, and we've agreed with my daughter's consultant that she can come home with us. She can come and recuperate at home. So my wife's absolutely exhausted from giving birth, but she's ready to go. None of us have slept for ages and we're ready to go. And we're like, right, we're, we're taking my daughter out now. And physio, who hadn't seen her before, kind of came along and went, uh, oh, no, she's got a fracture in her leg. She can't go home. And I was like, no, we've agreed it with the consultants. You, you know, it's, this is all this is all part of the plan. We're, we're doing this. She's like, yeah, yeah, they, they, yeah, they can't go home. And I was like, all right, I'll tell you what, well, because it's all agreed, we'll just we'll discharge against medical advice. We'll, we'll you know, we'll, we'll wheel her out to the car and we'll, we'll be sorted. And she was like, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll get an ambulance. So we waited about eight hours for an ambulance. And the ambulance kept saying, well, the physio, if the physio says no, we're not going to take her. And I was like, oh, but the consultant said that we can do this. This is all agreed. And, and this carried on for about 18 hours. And eventually the nurse said, if you take your child home, we're going to call children's services on you. And I wanted to explode. And it was, it was one night of being in hospital. And the doctor came in the next day and went, do you want to go home? Are you still here? Yeah, go on, off you go. But that night I wanted to explode. And I think if I had had a little, a tiny bit less control, I'd have been shouting and swearing and oh, tearing the place down. And I think, you know, if I had a label on me, somebody would have been saying, ooh, inappropriate feelings of anger from that mad man over there. Yeah. But I think there is something about that lack of power that we can have in those environments that definitely exacerbate our emotional reactions um and i just think of people who are trapped in environments that they don't want to be in and so many decisions are made for them and you know i, I had one tiny taste of that and i hated it um but to live with that day to day i think must be absolutely excruciating i think that that locus of control uh thing is is massive in you know it should be in all healthcare. Um, yeah. But particularly in mental health, and that's one of the reasons why I always made a very conscious effort of every decision didn't, like I may have made suggestions, but the final decision was never mine. It doesn't matter what it was, whether it was, yeah. you know, do you want to play nine ball or eight ball on the pool table? Like whatever it was, it was their decision. Like I'm just the support. Um, mm -hmm. And the the analogy I used to use with people to try and explain, I guess, what I was going to do with them is, you know, you're driving, I'm just the GPS kind of thing. So I I think putting this is like deliberately, even if it's simple little stuff and you already know or you think you know what they're going to say is the answer, like give that person the option. Even the fact that, you know, it might, whatever the situation is, it might not really be an option. Um, give it to them. The fact that they just have the power, have the option there. Like I said, when I was in... ED, I think I was in ED for eight, no, it must have been longer than that. It was probably 12 hours. And because ED emergency is a locked ward, and yeah, I could have gone out, but just the fact that I couldn't get up and go whenever I felt like it, like it was out of my control. I had to rely on yeah. someone else just to go and get a drink from the vending machine kind of thing. 
that put pressure on me. Like that gave me like, oh, that's kind of anxiety provoking in a way, even though it was only minor. But then you get a few of those little minor things and it builds up and it turns what should be a fairly smooth thing into a negative experience. Um, and like you said, I would I would assume that on ninety nine point nine percent of days you would consider yourself quite a calm, logical person, and just that control being taken away, and I guess the blase attitude that some people uh, I guess I, I don't even think they would view it as blase. I just think they don't think about it. Yeah, um, I, I, my my example there is like we think that you are a dangerous man who is going to hurt your children yeah. I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, <it's> like, <laughs> you can punch a wall maybe but i i do not welcome that interpretation of me <laughs> yeah um, and, like, and then we do it to people that we work with <laughs> well, yeah. it's the same situation where where their environment uh including us in it is having an impact and it's not always a positive one. And unless we're consciously looking, stuff like that can happen yeah. without us even realizing that something's wrong or that something's having a negative impact on someone. Probably one of the biggest ones that I get worried about is, like I say, you know, people who self-harmed in a way that was safer in the community, they do it in a more dangerous way in hospital. And then our response in hospital is to get people who've been sexually abused, get three people to hold them down, take their clothes off and inject them. And we keep doing that until they recover. Do you know, what is that about? Um, it's, it, doesn't make, it doesn't make any sense. It's the same, and with, then we see- it's the same with like, uh, like, behavior, like outbursts of behavior, especially like I used to see a lot of sensory stuff um, where, you know, like I said earlier, like acute wards aren't necessarily the most stimulating environment. So people will find way, like if they have a sensory need, people will make it happen. Like people are very Mm. resourceful. Um, And sometimes those ways that they make them happen are quite maladaptive. And then they end up locked in the intensive side of the ward because they're breaking things or they're disrupting the piece or whatever they're doing isolated even more and with even more mm-hmm. limited resources and i'm like that's not actually going to fix it we actually need to give these people more things to do yeah like i i can remember one dude uh years and years ago when i was working with him and he he must have just had this sort of he just needed heavy work uh and they he ended up i can't remember why but he ended up in the lock side of the ward and he was <laughs> pulling them, they had like concrete picnic tables and he was a strong young dude and he was ripping the tops off them and throwing them against the metal fence and the concrete was shattering and he thought that was hilarious so he kept doing it to all of them Um, and their thing was okay we'll put him in seclusion like he's obviously coming to this locked area which is lower stimulation he's causing more damage we'll put him in an even smaller room with less to do and we'll see what happens and I'm like can no one else see what's happening? Yeah. And in the end, what I ended up doing is because the, the hospital, that ward has a gym. So I took him to the gym and he worked out. He, you know, was in there for hours curling weights and trying to show off to all the, all the nurses. And uh, that was it. He was good. He was calm. He yeah. settled down. He just needed some input. And we kept yeah. 
as a service kept like trying to put him into a less and less uh, stimulating environment and he was getting less and less and he was getting more and more agitated and yeah. we were wondering why. And obviously it was his fault in quotation marks mm-hmm. because he was misbehaving. And I'm like, no, it's our fault because we are yeah. not servicing him the way he needs to be. But and it's interesting that well, we'll we'll just keep doing more of what we're doing. <laughs> we'll we'll take more and more away until we we hit that magic spark. And and, and that thing of can nobody else see this? It's it, it's something I find happens a lot. And and I always kind of wonder if I'm just being incredibly arrogant when that's happening. But I don't know. I think we do get stuck into these little organisational cycles of. Well, we will restrict, and if that doesn't work, we will keep restricting, and then we might send to a more restrictive environment. But uh, one of the ones that really sticks with me at the moment is somebody who who used to self harm in private in their bedroom. They, that, you know, that was their place where they would do it. And every time they self harmed, the unit would stop them going on leave. And I was like, but you know, they've they've never hurt themselves outside of the hospital. You know, it, it feels like. Yeah. The only reason we would stop them going out is if we want them to self-harm more. We don't want that, do we? Come on, we'd, we'd be better off locking their bedroom as opposed to kind of stopping them going on leave. <laughs> Let's keep them in the self-harming environment longer and not let them get out of it. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's these, these really perverse environmental adaptions. We will keep them there. We will be more restrictive. And, you know, we'll pat ourselves on the back that we are doing something while kind of actively not looking at how much worse things are getting. So with, with oh, in my experience, like most acute wards, there's the OTs are usually vastly outnumbered by other professions. Um, mm-hmm. Like I said, there's been wards where I've worked where I'm the only OT and there's been wards where I've worked with a couple. Um, what do you think... In my experience, all wards have these same problems. I've not found a ward that has somehow found some magic way to avoid uh, all of these. And in conversation with other people, including yourself today, it sounds like all wards are pretty similar around the world. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's some something that OT clinicians can do to, I guess, try and break the cycle? Like, what do you think we can do to try and break that cycle? Even though we're outnumbered and, you know, we we may not have the biggest impact on the whole workplace culture, what do you think we can do about it? So, as somebody who hasn't worked on the wards for a long time, uh, <laughs> I suppose I think, you know, is, is occupational thinking a big part of our organisations? And I don't think it is. Um, so... At the moment, it would be almost heresy in the UK for a occupational therapist to be the ward manager. Um, and there's a couple around, but but why couldn't we do that more? Do you know why couldn't why why can't we lead mm. on on that environment? Um, I think OTs are generally often a bit separate from the wards. They might have their own base, um, so there will be a nursing team and a the. OT that comes in and out. And again, can we be integrated into those teams a bit more? Can we, do we have to be a separate profession that comes on and does stuff? Or can we be in the numbers in the same way that the nurses are? And, and that means that we would do some stuff that isn't our typical role. 
but it would also mean that we're having a bigger impact. And, and again, we might be changing the way that the staff understand and think about people. We might not be running a craft group, but we might be bringing a bit of different thinking into that team. Because again, like we um, talked about earlier, you're then becoming a part of their environment and hopefully changing yeah, exactly. their environment as well. Yeah. Because I, I think we... I think our role should be changing, uh, challenging stigma, perhaps more than other professions, because it is the it is the social environment around people. So if everybody is looking at somebody and thinking, you know, that person there is splitting the team, uh, they they're, they're splitting, and and you know that that's a seventeen year old girl who's lived through abuse for years. You know, they they don't have the power to pull highly functioning teams apart there's something that's going on with us that's doing that there let's, let's try and understand that a bit that your team's really not that highly functioning if that's happening well indeed <laughs> yeah but but so much better to be able to blame the one person for it oh, than yeah. kind of look at where we might be much falling down ourselves um but yeah I, I i think we could have ot's working within our organizations a lot differently i think some people would object to oh, oh that's yeah. not traditional ot that's that's not what we normally do well let's do it let's let's do it you know there's a couple of pioneers out there who are running wards and leading services and let's get behind them because that what that's what shows that we can do that work i think i think in my career i've been really lucky in that I think it probably more than half the teams I've ever worked on have actually been run by OTs. So I've kind of been lucky. I think that's fairly rare for a lot of people, but none of the inpatient wards. The inpatient wards have always been run by a nurse unit manager. And, and you're right. I, th- yeah. I think it would be even that simple change. I think it would be a massive organizational change and a massive cultural change. I don't know how you do it on a very sort of long existing ward. Um, but I think having a it's a, even any any other profession run a ward because I think predominantly they tend to be nurses that tend to mm-hmm. run wards, um, and that's one of those things where I think it's just this is how it's always been, so this is how it is. Um, but even put a social worker in there, put an OT in there, put a mm-hmm. anyone in there. I think it would be a very interesting uh, thing to see how the ward culture itself changed uh and i think it would be for the better i think it would you know we'd always talk about diversity but i think adding more influence from some of the more i guess what you'd say minority professions on an inpatient ward um or even within many mental health teams uh would be very interesting especially for an ot Uh, i could see that having a huge benefit yeah (laughs) One of the big what I was thinking before too is one of the biggest benefits I made or I found when I was working clinically was like you said, quite often just the layout of wards is OTs. You know they'll have a little office somewhere or they may not even like one of the wards. Our office wasn't even on the ward; it was you know well, in the building, but sort of out of the ward and down the hallway. Yeah. So we weren't accessible to we were accessible to staff. We weren't accessible to the 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 patients, the clients. Yeah. Um. So one of the biggest changes I made, I made a lot of changes all at once, but one of the biggest ones I made was I pretty much realized, well, unless I'm actually typing something, I don't need to be in my office. Um, So any spare time, I would often just sit in the dining room or in the TV room with the people that were on the ward and 
you know. Yeah. If I was talking to them, if I had nothing else to do, which was rare, um, just have a conversation with them and just be with them. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess trying to normalize the or trying to minimize the sort of us and them that just naturally happens on a, a ward like that anyway. Yeah. And you can share a coffee then. Have a coffee, have a chat. Obviously, I'd leave them alone if they wanted to have their own space, but sometimes there was no one there and sometimes they'd see you sitting in there and come and sit with you and have a chat. They'd instigate, which, again, that tells you something about people. Like, everything that you observe can tell you something about the people that you're observing. Um, And I think that doing that makes you part of the staff team as opposed to you being in a different environment or somebody who they have to refer to. You know, you just become part of the way that that ward works. Yeah. And... And again, you know, in a very simple way, that means you're doing more input with those patients and groups and stuff. But I think probably the more um, the more important stuff is that you're influencing that culture in a way that wouldn't happen if the OT just came on for the special things. Yeah. I think one of the important things, and I'd be curious to see your opinion on this because I've, I've long had the opinion that an acute unit may not be the best um, environment for a new grad and I say that purely because in my experience with them they do have these very hardened cultures on the workplace which tend to form new grads I mean whenever someone graduates their main thing is like oh they want to impress and they just want to do a good job and they do whatever anyone tells them because that's how it is and they tend to be shaped by the culture as opposed to coming in with their own individual identity that they're confident enough in to maintain and make changes Mm -hmm. themselves um I'd be keen. Have, do you have any thoughts about whether or not it's it's sort of a suitable environment for a new grad? Or well, thinking about it on the spot, um, I think I suppose it depends because I think it's it's not so much a ward environment. It's the idea of kind of having a kind of closed institution where people can't think. I think that's where things become quite toxic. Um, and you know, potentially, ward environments have got that to a greater extent than community services. But I think community services can be entrenched in the way that they oh, think yeah. about things as well. You know, yeah, and I've certainly worked in community mental health teams that would say we don't work with that client group that you work with here, and. <laughs> and I'm always kind of amazed that they think that and amazed that they feel confident enough to say it. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't know if it is just about that physical environment and if it's a bit more about the cultures that can develop. Um, yeah, I don't know. I suppose I'm, I'm very conscious as well that a lot of people's first mental health placements are on acute wards. I mean, that's that's where people go a lot of the time. And yeah, could you take that away? Would there be a benefit to taking that away? So Would there think, be any placements left? Yeah, uh, so I think that's probably a bit different over here because I reckon the majority of our mental health placements are community. Okay. Over here. Well, in, in the districts that I've worked in anyway, they have been. 
Yeah, and, uh, and maybe that's part of my experience is that I went on a placement on a inpatient unit, so yeah. everybody, went, you know, who, yeah, who yeah. knows? And like um, I like like I said, my very first job was an inpatient unit, so I'm the epitome of what I'm saying probably shouldn't happen, but and I wouldn't change it. I learned a lot in that team. That team was slightly different to a pure inpatient, but um, I, I think it takes a unique new grad to flourish in that environment straight out of uni. And I guess Mm -hmm. from my experience, like I was talking about before, I kind of got entrenched in that bubble of not really seeing the progress that people make outside and only seeing the worst of people when they're at their worst. Um, And I didn't really, until I left that job and I went into community uh, case management after that, and then all of a sudden it was like, oh, there's this whole other side to mental health care that I hadn't seen up until that point yeah. sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, it, it's interesting. I, it, there's a few people. I've got a few people's opinions on that, and some of them are like, yep, yeah, no, don't put them in, and some like you are like, oh, I can kind of see how it could work, but I can see how sometimes it might not. But, yeah, it's, it's an interesting uh, thing. My my first ever job was in uh, a special security hospital. Um, so like people who um, who were regarded as quite dangerous, and um, it, it was in this kind of like forlorn hill in the middle of nowhere, and and the people there just they 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 weren't going anywhere very quickly. Um, and I just found that my, my first experience of the work there was of a very closed institution where there was a lot of judgment towards the people who had been admitted there. And some of them had done some horrific things. Um, but, the, you know, it was a huge us and them culture. It was a huge culture of control um, and probably lean in that way more than therapy. Um, and again, you know, so that is an inpatient environment, but that's a place that even though it was a really good OT service there, it wouldn't take much to kind of really get into that mindset of us, mm. them, control, restraints, keep them in their place. Um, and, I, you know, I think if I'd stayed there a long time, that that would have seeped into me quite a lot. Um, and again, I don't know if that is inpatient in general or that kind of closed off separate institution that fosters a particular way of thinking. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I think a lot of the community services here seem to work fairly well together. So they're not as siloed as I could see them being in, in other services. So maybe that has an impact. Whereas the inpatient service is very siloed. (laughs) Like it's, that's it. Even well, it's got a locked door, isn't well, it? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, the, it. I mean, that's one of the big a, things. You need a swipe card to get in. So, um, but even the fact that, like, where I worked, my last acute job, there's two acute units. There's a secure unit, and there's a car park in between them, and that's it. And you never saw anyone from the other unit. Like that was it. Yeah, they worked in that unit. You worked in that unit. That was it. I don't even know who the OT was in that unit. Like <laughs> at at times. It is a very siloed service. So you're right. It could very well be um, more to do with how isolated the team is where, and then the, I guess, the culture that that creates within any team, not just the, the inpatient uh, aspect of it. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, so what's, so you're, you're doing other work now. What are you doing now? Uh, so I left the NHS in April. Um, and I worked for my own company 
and you know, I, I just kept seeing young people um, who who would would often kind of self harm and and be recurrently suicidal, and they would be sent to private hospitals that were very bad for years on end. Nobody thought that they were going to be very useful. Um, and I found that very difficult to watch, particularly because I'd come from a team that never sent people to private hospitals. So I was seeing people who I know, if they'd lived in another part of the country, they'd have been supported in the community. And now they were going to lose years of their life. Um, so I wanted to try and set up an alternative to that. So, yeah, I've set up Beam. Um, and Beam helps the people who pay for those private hospitals to have a different option. So we we support people in the community. Um, yeah, that, so that's it's supporting them. It's supporting them to get out, like to discharge from those private hospitals. Uh, so it, it depends at what point we get involved. So we have helped people who are in private hospitals to come out. Um, we have helped people who are on acute units where they are thinking of placements to private hospitals. We, we we've given them an, another option, so they've taken that and uh, and kept people at home. That's awesome. That's really good. Is that is that a common? So I don't know. In Australia, in my experience, there's not a whole lot of private mental health stuff going on. There's a few, yeah, but there's it's by far and away mostly public health um, with within mental health services. Is it common over in the UK for private mental health service to be offered, or are you breaking new ground, or? How, what's, the, um, what's the scene like over there? I mean, there's definitely um, supported accommodation is is a thing, you yeah. know. So people um, could, would move into houses with support workers in there. It's to, to have the kind of private um, health service in the community that isn't just you know a bit of one to one therapy support, yeah. um, is it, it, it's fairly new. I think we. we like to think of ourselves as being quite innovative um but you know in a, in a way you know i i did a an, a master's degree in personality disorder that was funded by the health service in britain and what i wanted to do was then take that into the nhs and help them to stop sending people to private hospitals um but the difficulty i found is that all the jobs where you could do that they were only for psychologists or psychotherapists and you know, OTs, OTs weren't getting in there. Yeah. Um, so my my dissertation was on how a team stopped using private hospital placements. And the place I would work in would have meetings about how to stop this happening. And, and I wouldn't be invited along. And I was like, this, this was my dissertation. This, this is my wheelhouse. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so it was really frustrating to see that. Um, and, you know, it, it costs a million pounds a year to send four people to a private hospital. Um, and again, you know, because nobody's got any optimism that that's going to make any difference, it just felt such a waste of taxpayers' money in that's our country. Insane. That's like um, two and a half million Australian. That's massive. It's, yeah. And we people. will not get... We will not get good community services while we are spending that much money on what is basically locking people up. Um, the old, the old uh, asylum model. Yeah, 
And, you know, it's a, one of the few publications I have ever made. So I managed to get something in The Lancet last year saying that we send people to private hospitals, not because we think it will make them better, but because we are worried that they will die on our patch. So if we export them into private hospitals, they can be dangerous there. They can hold the risk of it and we can feel all right. And, you know, it just kind of goes against what I feel as a human being, that we should be doing stuff based on our interests and organisations' interests rather than the interests of the people that we're working with. It's like moving the cups around of responsibility. Like, who's going to pick exactly. it? Exactly. <laughs> we're just going to yeah. shift it around. Yeah. Oh, that's so nice. that's, kind of, uh, that's kind of what I do in Beam. And then I'm really interested in kind of um, mental health tribunals as well. So if you get detained in this country, you are able to appeal your detention and... I, I, I sell myself out as an expert to kind of go along and say, you know, this this restriction is generally making this person worse and they are probably better off not in hospital. So I'm quite enjoying that. And then we do a lot of training around um, what gets described as personality disorder, but working with people who are recurrently suicidal and self-harming. Um, so it's in some ways it's quite scary to be working for yourself, and in other ways this is exactly what I want to be doing. This is uh, this is very much the fun parts of the of the NHS work without the crippling bureaucracy and hierarchy that was crushing me. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, there's a lot of uh, similarities between the NHS and the health system over here, um, by the sense of even just like team structure and. A lot of the models are often quite mm-hmm. similar. Like the the models of practice are often quite similar. So, the your comment about bureaucracy definitely resonates. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's one yeah. of the biggest. I didn't even realize it. Sort of how bad it was until I left, and I was like, "Man, that was that's so." The whole world doesn't operate like that. Who knew? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and you've also started a podcast. Yeah, so um, me and Holly Berrigan. So Holly is a lived experience practitioner that I work with a lot. Um, And we're going to be talking to people who have some level of influence or have something important to say around the work of personality disorder. Um, so we're talking to, I don't know, it's a, you've got an international audience, so these names might not mean that much, but uh, we're talking to Norman Lamb, who was uh, an MP over here, Joel Paris, who's a very influential uh, psychiatrist in the world of personality disorder. Um, talking to Nicola Thorpe, who's um, she's an actress and she's a campaigner. She's one of the few people in the public eye to talk about, I have this BPD diagnosis. Um, so just, yeah, it's, it's quite nice just to talk to people that I find quite interesting, uh, I'm interested in. Best thing about having a podcast. Yeah, <laughs> if other people are interested, yeah, that's, that's cool. But yeah, it's in some ways it's, it's more for me than anything else. <laughs> and what, what's it called? What Have you got a name? Oh, yeah, so it's called, it's called The Wrong Kind of Mad which is how often people refer to personality disorder. It's, you know, you uh, your needs are not high enough to access this level of care, um, but actually you're too complex for us, so you can't access that level of care. So we, we got people on Twitter to vote for what the name should be. So, yeah, the wrong kind of meds, which you should be able to get from most places except Apple at the moment. Oh, that's um, all right. It'll be... Uh... 
I reckon by the time this episode comes out, they'll be able to get it pretty much anywhere. Uh, and I'll uh, I'll throw the links in the show notes if anyone is keen to check that one out. I'm definitely keen to have a listen because it sounds super interesting. Uh, oh, and I, I love that lived experience. Like I've, I've had a few people on, on Occupied with lived experience of various diagnoses and I just always find that the really valuable learning uh, material is learning directly off people. Same as I was saying earlier about learning off individuals that you work with. I always, that's, yeah. that's the bit of the job that I love the most. So, i tell you what, Holly wrote a really good piece on um, occupational therapy groups that she's been a part of. So I'll whip that over to you. And, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll you can consider her as a guest for some time. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> Sounds awesome. Um, yeah, thanks for coming, man. I know, oh, no I know thanks it, for having me. I know it took a while. Yeah. We've like followed each other on social media for however many years. Uh, yeah. and- well, I, I tell you what, right? You took a long time to follow me on Twitter to Did the I? extent that I was thinking, what, what have I done? What have I done? To- why, why, why wouldn't he? What's, what's going on? Um, so, yeah, I was delighted. Twitter's probably the in. one social media I use the least. That's probably mm-hmm. all it was. Because I used to, I, th- I swear I follow, because I used to see your stuff all the time, unless it was like, yeah, well, either I'm, that I'm or we've got, either that or there's someone else. <laughs> that I follow that just retweeted your stuff so much that I just assumed that I followed you. Um, but yeah, it's it's been a long time coming and this is second time lucky because we didn't quite get to do it last time, like a month or so ago. Um, uh-huh. But yeah, super, super glad that we, we got to hang out and have a chat and yeah, it's been fun. Definitely. Excellent. Yeah, I have enjoyed it. We must do it again. If you liked this episode and want to check out more, head over to OccupiedPodcast.com or search Occupied Podcast in your favorite podcasting app. If you have thoughts or reflections on the topics discussed today, please do get in contact. We'd love to hear from you. And lastly, if you've got some value from this and you want to help